Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by Dr. Richard Boylan, whose work I came across after I read his article, Classified Anti-Gravity Aerospace Craft, from World Affairs, the Journal of International Issues. In this episode, Dr. Boylan explains how a UFO sighting in 1977 led to his lifelong pursuit of UFO and ET research and a departure from his career in traditional clinical psychology. Next, we go back to the events of Roswell, 1947, and the ensuing government cover-up of the ET phenomenon. Then we discuss Operation Paperclip and how German scientists, including Dr. Werner von Braun, were brought to the U.S. by the CIA after World War II. From there, we discuss how von Braun and his spokeswoman, Dr. Carol Rosen, spent the latter years of von Braun's life warning against weaponizing space in a planned false flag attack to stage a fake ET attack using reverse-engineered craft. From there, we discuss the development of the intelligence agencies and the relationship to the media. We then discuss a leaked video from Project Blue Book showing an ET from Zeta Reticuli being interrogated and the warnings he had for humanity. We end the discussion talking about the Tic Tac aircraft, the Apollo space missions, and how we humans can clean up our acts to become peaceful members of the intergalactic community. Outro is available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Please enjoy. Everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host Jordan Euclid, and this afternoon I am so excited and fortunate to be joined by Dr. Richard Boylan. Dr. Boylan, how are you doing today? Hi, Jordan. I'm doing well, thank you very much, and pleasure to be here. Absolutely, really excited to have you on. Uh, for the listeners' benefit, I first came across Dr. Boylan's work when I found uh, an article he'd published in World Affairs magazine back in 2005 entitled. A classified anti-gravity aerospace craft. And so we'll certainly be getting into uh, into this journal in particular, but to kick things off, Dr. Boylan would love to, if you could give the listeners uh, a little bit of your personal history in, uh, in your life growing up. Okay, well, I am uh, a child of w- World War II era. I was born technically well, I was born in 1939. World War II was going ahead, but Pearl Harbor hadn't happened yet. Uh, but uh, I, my early childhood was spent listening to my parents talking about radio news about uh, uh, the war, and got, I got old enough to kind of understand a little better when they were talking about the Japanese theater of the war. And uh, I remember very vividly VJ Day, uh, victory over Japan, when uh, the uh, fire engine in our community rang uh, a a siren, sort of sounds like an air raid siren. It went on and on. I said to my father, Daddy, what's that? Why why is it going so long? He said, we won over the Japanese. was quite young, but uh, I understood that that might mean the end of World War II was coming. For me, World War II 
as a small kid meant uh, we had to be satisfied with uh, peanut butter that tasted like it was made out of the shells instead of the peanut. Because all the good all the good supplies went to the brave soldiers overseas and uh, the civilians. You know, we were uh, rationing uh, food. Yeah, coupons. You couldn't buy too much of any one thing, and. Uh, it was belt tightening time, and everybody was glad to do it. And the housewives collected their grease and lard from cooking and sent it to the government because it was used in the manufacturing of bullets uh, and uh, lubricant for weapons and so forth. Uh, the war was very real in a civilian sense in terms of deprivation and focus on uh, and, you know, if you had any extra aluminum, send it because they could melt it down and make uh, weaponry with it. We had to uh, make airplanes for the first time that uh, really, you know, fighter planes that were light and nimble and could uh, outperform the uh, German and then Japanese fighter planes. So it was vivid. And I lived, you know, about four or five miles from Lockheed Airport, which is now uh, uh, Lockheed Martin Corporation. And I remember the, the planes taking off from there. And uh, so it, it, was, uh, it was a vivid time. Of course, uh, glad to grow up in, in the peace that got declared in 1945 and uh, lasted for a while. That must have been su such an incredibly fascinating time to grow up. It was. It kind of <clears throat> healed me for other kinds of warfare I got into later, which was intellectual warfare. Uh, as the government tried to keep the UFO matter secret and uh, took strong measures to deal with anybody who tried to speak out of turn on that. Uh, let me jump to the other elements of my early life. I was a good Catholic boy and uh, entered the seminary rather early in the beginning of high school after grade school uh, in a parochial school, and uh, then college, and then uh, graduate theology studies, and was ordained a priest. And uh, this was in the early 60s. Uh, in 1965, I was ordained the what some might call the hippie revolution was going on in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere, and uh, people were shaking off the old ways and uh, looking for a more sincere and vital kind of uh, way of living, and uh, putting aside just doing things because we've always done it that way. Well, uh, I certainly was imbued with that spirit and uh, came to part ways with uh, the priesthood because the Catholic Church was in the midst of a, uh, what was supposed to be a, a reform uh, gathering in Rome, and uh, the conservative Cardinals uh, outvoted the progressives and said we're going to take the church back to the 16th century. Uh, at that point, I 
turned in my resignation uh, from the priesthood and moved to civilian life. Uh, I worked uh, as a social worker for a while and then went to uh, UC Berkeley to get a master's degree in social work and continued in that for some years, uh, eventually rising to run the uh, county mental health department. Then I uh, did that for a number of years and went back to uh, get my doctorate degree in psychology at UC Davis, which I felt would give me a much better, more advanced preparation in working with people and doing psychotherapy and counseling. I finished that in 1984 and uh, went, eventually went into private practice uh, counseling folks. After some years of that, uh, I began to do focus on UFO matters. I had seen a UFO for the first time in 1977 when those things were known, but uh, not really part of the, the culture the way they are these days. Uh, but what was beginning to develop as a kind of a new phenomenon was the matter of people not just seeing UFOs in the sky, but uh, having visits by people from the stars, extraterrestrial DTs, if you will. And in my private practice, I, I was fascinated with this. I'd always believed UFOs were real. I'd seen them decades earlier by my own and uh, followed the uh, UFO magazine's accounts of other people's sightings and experiences. Uh, but when, when people started to say they had a visitor in their bedroom the, the other night uh, who wasn't from Earth, uh, and told them things about what was going to happen, and some people got healed from some ailment they had. I was fascinated, so I decided to work with folks who found this experience a bit unsettling. Waking up and seeing somebody you didn't look like a human in your bedroom. And uh, I figured as a uh, quite progressive psychologist, I could uh, be of some help since I was uh, a believer of an acceptor of UFO reality and the fact that people get out of the UFOs and walk up to people and talk to them is just the next logical step in close encounters. I helped probably close to uh, 900 folks I advertised in the paper that I was doing this work, and that may have been a, a fatal mistake because the Board of Psychology uh, 
was operating in the same town that I was working in, uh, decided that uh, I might injure the uh, lustrous status of the profession of psychology by engaging in dealing with a cuckoo subject like UFOs and ETs. They, the Board of Psychology was sort of like the uh, the Cardinals during the Reform Conference in Rome. Uh, they wanted to keep everything old, old good old time unchanged. And uh, the idea that you could counsel people about extraterrestrial encounters was just too controversial and far out there for the uh, the august board of psychology so they uh, took action to solve the problem by taking away my license to practice figuring that would shut me up well it did force me to stop counseling practice because by law you can't do professional counseling of folks if you don't have a license. But uh, it didn't stop my interest in UFOs, and I found other employment and uh, continued my research. <clears throat> I used, uh, I, this is 95, 1995. Um, so I used some of my greater free time to do some field research. I started first of several visits to Area 51 in Nevada, which is a, some hours drive from where I live, and uh, was rewarded with seeing UFOs there has flown over the Room Range Mountains near uh, next to Area 51. I even penetrated it uh, on one of several occasions and uh, into a box canyon closer to the west side of the range and saw a UFO being test flown there. At this point, I couldn't tell if it was extraterrestrial or not, but after watching the gyrations, uh, I decided it was of human manufacture. I had a confidant, a guy I'll just call Bill, who uh, worked in the aerospace industry in my area, and and. Uh, gave me some hints about places where I might find evidence of U U.S. made UFOs or anti-gravity craft, not extraterrestrial ones. In other words, by this time, secretly, the U.S. government had back-engineered technology from the stars, from uh, pillaging crashed UFOs. Actually, most of them were shot down. Ever since Roswell in 1947, uh, there have been about 119 crashed or shot down UFOs since then, and the U.S. government made its business, no matter what country that happened in, to send its teams 
to retrieve them and pay off the local government or strong arm them and get, bring them back to the U.S. to be analyzed at Los Alamos National Laboratory and to a degree at Area 51. And then the, the uh, technology was copycatted as best could be by our top scientists and the folks at various laboratories, uh, military and uh, aero classified aerospace laboratories, uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, Northrop Grumman. I even uh, staked out Northrop Grumman's uh, laboratory in the side of the Tehachapi Mountains near Interstate 5 above Los Angeles one night and uh, saw a UFO, this is about 3 in the morning, uh, hardy research. It was cold and strong wind blowing, but uh, I watched while a uh, there was a little side halfway up, up the mountain that stuck out flat, a little kind of mesa, short, very short mesa there. And I watched it lit up with my binoculars from about a mile or two away and uh, something came out dark and onto that shelf and then it started glowing and then it started lifting off the ground and it went up vertically. It looked round and uh, but it was all covered with shiny energy emanations, I assume from inside, that the high energy voltages used were causing it to uh, glow. And uh, it uh, lifted up and went on a, about a half mile trip down at low altitude, just not really gaining any altitude above higher than it was on its mountain launch platform. And then it did a lazy circle around, and then it slowly came back. And when it got near the uh, where it started on that mountain shelf, it uh, stopped and then slowly descended vertically. And then the glow turned off. I, I assume that the engine or the uh, power system inside at that point had been shut off and it no longer glowed. This is the same kind of apparition, uh, vision, uh, sighting that I saw at Area 51 when several of these craft all glowing so much that it kind of almost hurt your eyes looking through binoculars wow. to stare at them. It was that and bright. And you mentioned... Like trying to stare at a welding torch. Uh... So I, I drew to the conclusion that these ones got made at Northrop plant in the Hatchby Mountains and then uh, get test flown at Area 51. And the pilots get a chance to prove them, show that they were made properly, and wow. get used to handling these very exotic controls on this very exotic craft. And so you'd mentioned that a couple decades prior to this, you had seen a UFO. Uh, and I'm curious, 
were the movements similar in that initial experience or could you, could you explain kind of what that first experience was like for you? Well, this, uh, was 1977, and one of those things that convinced me that UFOs weren't just an interesting topic you might see in Life magazine or maybe an early UFO magazine, but they're out there real. They're... My buddy and I were hiking on the hilltops above uh, where I lived in Marin County and uh, near the Gold Gate Bridge, and uh, lovely up there. And we were hiking along in the afternoon, and then I noticed something. The sky was clear. It's a nice blue sky day, hardly any clouds. And uh, I noticed this one little dark object uh, was slowly going across the sky at about 200 feet above us. And uh, I was looking at uh, the wind direction. It was going against the wind, so it wasn't a runaway Mylar balloon, which the debunkers used to say, oh, you didn't see a UFO, you just saw a shiny Mylar balloon. But no, this thing was going against the wind, so that wasn't it. And it was really too large and uh, kind of stately and slow for a runaway balloon anyway. And I determined uh, it, it was uh, my first sighting of an actual UFO. Wow. In those days, I, I doubt that uh, U.S. manufactured anti-gravity craft were operational yet. So I think this one was extraterrestrial. Wow. But uh, I've seen a number of both kinds. Obviously, the extraterrestrial ones are much more elegant and uh, high performance. Anybody who's seen the uh, news uh, footage of Navy pilot uh, targeting uh, this uh, radar uh, video footage of these uh, Tic Tacs, they call it, the Navy pilots call them. Uh, uh, quick-moving anti-gravity craft that buzz around aircraft carriers and uh, the pilots are sent up to uh, uh, photograph them and uh, follow them and they outperform them by enormous amounts. One Tic Tac has been photographed by the Navy aviators that it went from uh, sea level to, uh, I think, 20,000 feet in two seconds. Uh, obviously, the Navy doesn't have anything like that, and certainly the Navy F-18s can't do that. Uh, we don't, well, we didn't used to have anything that could do that. Only uh, the U.S.'s most advanced classified uh, aerial hardware, in other words, man-made UFOs can do that sort of thing. These anti-gravity craft, that was child's play to them. Hmm. So then, kind of back to your timeline between, you know, um, or sorry, rather, after you left UC Davis, you mentioned that you started doing more of this hands-on research full-time, and so maybe we can 
pick up uh, the journey there. And I'm curious, how did you get your article published on on uh, classified anti-gravity airspace, like aerospacecraft? I would think that that would have been something that would have been hard to get published in a journal. Yeah, I'm kind of uh, proud of that. As one of my World Affairs magazine is international and quite known, and uh, probably one of my biggest publications. I've uh, been published in other things too. Uh, well, I've written five books and gotten lots of interviews of on the content. That I'll just give you the titles; they pretty much tell what they're about. Close extraterrestrial encounters, labor journey to the stars, about what I found haunting Area 51 and other areas, and talking to informants who work inside the industry uh, about U.S.-made UFOs. Uh, then uh, I started to specialize in working with Star Kid. The next iteration of contact between extraterrestrials and humans is that first you see their spacecraft in the air, that's UFOs. Then you see um, people visited by ETs when they're out on a walk or at night in their bedroom or something. And then the third generation of involvement is that uh, people who have close encounters sometimes are taken on board the craft and the the folks on board do a little uh, genetic upgrade. They take a bit of their reproductive material over their sperm and uh, upgrade it, tweak it a little bit with some of their genetics and so that when the that person later who's been visited goes on to have a kid, the kid is startlingly more brighter and and uh, more advanced than the old kids of that we knew when we were growing up. There were so many of them doing that that it became a phenomenon, and people were scratching their heads about this new generation, which I dubbed the Star Kids because. A lot of their high performance is because they're operating with a smidgen of star genetics in them, along with their regular human genetics. And then uh, my last book is The Human-Star Nation's Connection, which talks about the star visitors' plans to uh, come out in the open and work with the governments that have been keeping UFO contact a secret all these years. and trying to launch a new generation, a new society version that is cosmic, that is aware that we are not alone in the universe. In fact, we have been and are visited, and that people who are visitors are sharing information with us that allowed us to make great advances in uh, science and culture and and other areas. and. Uh, that we're on the dawn of a whole new era. And so taking a step back, because I think for folks who are newer to exploring UFOs and and extraterrestrials, you know, it can sound pretty unbelievable. And so maybe maybe it'd be helpful to kind of go back in time and and maybe we should start with Roswell or, or even earlier, if you think, and just kind of give the history of the interaction between the military and extraterrestrials. The people who watch these 
shows like Ancient Alien and so forth that have really seen how long we've been at knowing about extraterrestrial visitation and uh, uh, UFO sightings uh, already know that the uh, alien scare threat is bogus. But the general public doesn't see that stuff on the nightly news, so let's go back and take it step by step, kind of a quick review, all the way from the alleged first UFO crash in 1947 at Roswell, New Mexico. That work for you? Okay, well, as Carol, uh, excuse me, Paula Harris and Jacques Vallée remind us with their research, uh, actually the first UFO crash was in 1946, five, excuse me, at, at uh, a little town in New Mexico, just north of uh, Roswell. In fact, it's near the Trinity first nuclear test site on the White Sands Missile Range. The little tiny town next to it is where the first one crashed. And when I use crashes, I do that with quotation marks around it because these are shoot downs. There's nothing wrong with extraterrestrial technology, their craft work perfectly well. But unbeknownst to the American public, uh, our military research arms have been perfecting extreme voltage, uh, extreme energy weapons, directed energy weapons at UFOs and bringing them down. They learned uh, from the nuclear tests that, that exploding a uh, nuclear bomb uh, generates an enormously powerful and large electromagnetic pulse, and the hydrogen bombs even more so. In fact, the Navy, well, the Department of Energy did a test out in the ocean off Hawaii, and when they were first doing H-bomb tests, and they they knocked out the lights in Honolulu, Hawaii, because of the pulse that came over from the hydrogen bomb site over to the Hawaiian Islands, and it interfered with the transformers and dynamos in the electrical power system Honolulu and knocked it off the air. So uh, these, you know, the people who do weapons research said, aha, I bet this is powerful enough to interfere with even the highly advanced extraterrestrial craft that come over us from time to time. And sure enough, if they directed a electromagnetic pulse at uh, a craft, sometimes they brought them down. I went to New Mexico to the uh, Sandia National Lab next to the Air Force Base there near Albuquerque. And I saw an electromagnetic pulse weapon test bed there. This was way back in 50, uh, 1995 when uh, this 
was that they were trying to perfect this technology uh, and duplicate it without having to set off a, a nuclear bomb. If anybody's good at uh, nuclear research, it's Los Alamos what Labs, and they uh, they were they had the sign. I managed to get into the base there and read the sign. Electromagnetic test. It was a very large device. Took up uh, about half a city block. It said uh, you can't photograph the site. It's classified and secure. Well, I took a photo anyway. It's on my website, but. Uh, that's what they were using to knock down UFOs. The first UFOs that were knocked down were because of nuclear tests or high energy, crude early high energy weapons that the military was experimenting with to duplicate, creating electromagnetic pulse fields without having to set off a nuke first. And uh, they were effective. The uh, visiting extraterrestrials were not expecting such advanced science from humans who they watched over the millennia as a fairly primitive society but uh, so they they did not have any shielding for that so uh, at any rate the electromagnetic pulse weaponry brought down the uh, saucer that landed in, in, in uh, 1945, two years before the test, the weapon at White Sands Missile Range that brought down two saucers on July of 1947, the Roswell saucer that everybody talks about, and another one uh, that landed a little farther to the west. They were both disabled by that pulse energy that they, the military generated that night. Yeah, and so were any extraterrestrials still alive after the ships were brought down? Yes and no. Uh, some some were killed by the crash. And, uh, details are sketchy, uh, but... Paula Harris and Jacques Vallée say in their book, Trinity, that uh, there was at least one living retrieved from the down saucer uh, there, just west of the White Sands Missile Range, and uh, was spirited away by the Army in those days. It was so early in things that... Uh, Army Air Corps was the agency that dealt with things in the air. Uh, Air Force had been invented for another couple of years. And uh, then in 47, of course, the Army Air Corps uh, intelligence from Roswell Air Force Base went out when reports of a downed saucer uh, at uh, Roswell and investigated and made their report. Those, that was the beginning of many uh, encounters, many shoot downs, uh, constantly evolving technology. And uh, it went on for many years after that. The, the, the punchline 
according to Dr. Werner von Braun and Carol Rosen, Dr. Carol Rosen, uh, is that the people behind the curtain that control things have a grand plan for when the time is ripe, staging a fake alien invasion using, of course, human manufactured UFOs, which the general population will think are real extraterrestrial UFOs, conducting a kind of war of the world attack. So that that is the grand plan of all else fails for the people who run things behind the scene to uh, maintain control as uh, the reality of extraterrestrial visitation opens up and they fear will diminish their power. And let's, uh, let's take some time to dive into the names that you just mentioned, Dr. Werner von Braun and uh, Carol Rosen, and you know, maybe we could even before that talk a little bit about Operation Paperclip and then kind of how the events at Roswell and ensuing events led to the creation of the intelligence agencies. Okay, one one at a time. Huh? Yeah, sorry, I know that's a, that's a lot to cover. That so why don't we start with uh, with uh, Warner Von Brown and uh, Dr. Carol Rosen? Yes, they they have uh, heroically put out information, Carol, about especially about since Dr. Von Braun is no longer with us uh, about what he told her. And this goes back to Nazi time, Nazi Germany times, and of course Von Braun was a German scientist who operated during the Nazi era, and uh, that was the price of working in military labs and doing the research he did. And uh, during the course of that, he learned that uh, there was a plan to stage what they call the final playing card of all of them. events that would uh, trigger conflict and and which the people behind the curtain uh, who run things wanted to use to maintain control and power. So Von Braun learned that after they tried various other things, that uh, the final playing card they would turn face up is to stage this invasion from the skies to be attributed to evil extraterrestrials and therefore uh, global martial law needed to be declared and they would use that to take power and run the world the way they liked. Yep, yep. And so then, you know, obviously, Werner von Braun is a Nazi scientist. How could it have been possible that he would have been involved in the U.S. aerospace industry? Well, he was a Nazi uh, scientist, or at least he said he was, when Nazi officers were around, because that was the price of working. But in his heart, he hardly uh, showed much sign of uh, the Nazi take-over-the-world agenda. He was too busy uh, with scientific research. But uh, And, of course, once the U.S. and Allies won World War II, the U.S. took a number of the most talented German scientists specializing in rocketry and uh, high energy and nuclear energy uh, 
the hidden one of the hidden secrets of World War II is the Nazis almost created an atomic bomb that worked. They were well on their way when uh, their labs got overrun by Allied troops and they were defeated. But the Allies were no fools. Military intelligence got into their labs and saw what they were up to and let U.S. president know, and the Russians did the same uh, with the sector of Germany they conquered. And both sides took the best scientists back to their home country to work on advancing these technologies and uh, rocketry and uh, nuclear power were in their infancy, to put it mildly, in U.S. and Russia during World War II, but uh, they moved way, way far ahead after these scientists came to work for the U.S. Uh, military lab. So uh, that's where that went. And was that Operation Paperclip what, what brought those scientists over to the U.S.? Yes, that, that was the name of the, at the time, classified project to bring these Nazi scientists over and house them uh, in New Mexico and uh, near a military installation and go to work with very generous funded and uh, forgiveness for their past sins of working for the Nazis and uh, giving them every uh, courtesy and, and comfort as they work to help the U.S. Uh, advance its skills in these sciences. And pretty soon we had the, v, the V-2 rockets that the Nazis uh, created uh, duplicated and exceeded by more sophisticated rockets at our White Sands Proving Ground missile range. And uh, all the way up to a rocket that could reach the moon and land astronauts there. One of, and all of that is an unbroken line of uh, achievement based on technology and information that the rocketry scientists from Germany told it showed the American scientists how to do. And likewise, nuclear research moved ahead because the Nazis were able to, the German scientists who were brought over by Project Paperclip were able to tell the uh, atomic scientists at Los Alamos uh, what mistakes and what successes they had had and to avoid duplicating those and uh, mistakes and to move ahead building on knowledge already available from the German nuclear scientists. So the Americans moved ahead after World War II at a pace that was jaw-dropping, and the secret behind the, the scenes is that it wasn't just American ingenuity. They, they, they had a kind of sort of like having this secret answer sheet to the exams. Uh, they, the German scientists gave them cues that allowed them to move much faster than they would have by just doing trial and error on their own. So while this technological development was happening, what was going on with regards to the development of the 
intelligence agencies? Well, the intelligence agencies in the U.S. have been around since George Washington. He had a spy corps during the colonial war. So uh, they have a history that goes way back. But they really moved into big time during World War II, where intelligence was literally, literally a matter of life and death. Good information saved lives. Bad information or lack of information cost lives. So that was a powerful motivator. And the agency's military intelligence grew mightily during World War II when, uh, to put it mildly, the uh, fate of the world depended on good information and who won that war. But uh, after the war, the agencies did not go away. The uh, nuclear threat from Soviet Russia certainly was an incentive for the U.S. to meet and exceed uh, what the paperclip scientists from Germany taught them because they had to be prepared for rockets from Russia with nuclear warhead on them to come and hit the United States. and. So we had to prepare missiles that could hit Russia and uh, with nuclear warheads on them to give them a reason not to try and do that. All of that research uh, just consumed enormous amounts of time and and, uh, government budget and skill building at various military labs. And uh, up to present time, where we still wonder whether Comrade Putin's going to push the red button or not over the adventures in Ukraine. The uh, intelligence agencies proliferated after Roswell crash in 1947 because everything extraterrestrial is extremely classified. And for 75 years, the government line has been, there's no such thing as UFOs. And uh, they had a draconian uh, enforcement force trying to keep secret uh, the reality of extraterrestrial visitation, keep secret the reality of certainly the U.S.'s efforts to build its own anti-gravity craft and successfully fly them. And uh, it back-engineered technology from crashed UFOs, as uh, everything we learned is not from paperclip scientists from Germany, uh, back-engineering crashed UFO technology and information about science from crew members on crash UFOs that survived and lived on and talked to and in some cases volunteered information, some cases were extorted and forced to divulge how things worked in their UFOs so that the scientists could copycat that and move American technology forward. And all of that, of course, required an enormously agile and effective and frankly, bullying and brutal 
military intelligence agency strong arm to keep secret and and to make sure nobody else got a hold of our secrets. Therefore, the uh, the national the CIA was invented during World War II and got busy. Uh, Office of Special Services, it was called during World War II, and then became the CIA after. It's very interesting that it's not a coincidence that the uh, CIA and the National Security Agency and the National Security Act were all passed after uh, the Roswell crash, and it became obvious that we had a, a quantum leap needed in moving ahead with technology and managing information and doing two things at the same time, keeping the American public from knowing that ETs are real, that UFOs are real, and at the, at the same time, behind the scenes, busily draining all the information we could get from captured living ETs and from captured shot-down UFOs. And uh, to do that, a huge apparatus uh, that was created to essentially be a kind of secret police to keep uh, keep all this stuff denied and hidden from the public and anybody who worked in classified labs and so forth knew that there was somebody looking over their shoulder or ready to receive any reports of somebody who talked too much at a bar about what they knew. It, it just became a very denied but enormously uh, large manpower secret police and enforcement force in the U.S. cozily called the intelligence community uh, these days. But they were uh, intelligence agents designed to guard the nation's secrets. And how have those intelligence agencies developed over the subsequent 70 years, and who's really in charge of them? Ah, uh, the question. Well, there are 16 ad not acknowledged U.S. intelligence agencies, the intelligence community as it is so cheerfully called. Uh, everybody knows the big one, CIA, NSA, of course, Army, Navy, and Air Force intelligence. Uh, but uh, there are many more. and. Uh, Excuse me, your, your question then had another How point. did those intelligence agencies develop over the next 70 years, and, and who's oh. running things for those intelligence agencies? Well, there was a thing called DISCO, the Defense Intel uh, Industrial Security Organization. In other words, all the defense plants after World War II that were using all these new technological hints and leads and information that came out of what we've been talking about. Uh, keeping what people developed secret became a, a huge growth industry in its own right. Uh, there was even a agency whose job was to plant spies and, and watch carefully what was going on instead inside defense plants to make sure that Secrets didn't get out, information didn't get out, people didn't talk, so that workers at these plants never knew if the guy down the, the bar from them 
four or five seats was a was a fellow worker from the plant or a uh, intelligence agent keeping track of who's talking loosely, and of course keeping the press suppressed from saying too much or saying things that weren't forbidden to be known, uh, and twisting the arms or, in a few cases, killing people that talk too much. Uh, not just in, in the industrial workforce, but reporters and, and other officials, military officers who had clearance to know about these things were to get careless and talk. They uh, had everything from having their careers curtailed to uh, other ways of disincentivizing them from talking. So that takes an enormous workforce to keep defense industry and all the military branches and everybody on minding their P's and Q's and not talking out of turn. And so we have a huge industry now that's trillions of dollars uh, of investment in every budget year running this secrecy industry, if you will, and enforcing it. And how have they been able to finance this massive industry? Well, I would, I would, I would be coy to say the black budget. That's true, of course. And there are a lot of things buried in the black budget. Uh, the U.S. budget has sections that are classified and only a few highly placed senators and congressional leaders get to know what's in there, and even they don't know all. And uh, more recently, I've come to believe that uh, free enterprise being what it is, that the, the uh, intelligence agencies have created their own funding source for themselves by making profit off of confiscated material when their spies get material from overseas, other agencies. Some of this can be turned into money-making schemes that don't have to be attributed to an intelligence agency. They can set up a dummy company to do some of these novel and, and technologies that are quite uh, expensive and make some money that way. Of course, when you send in intelligence agencies to raid certain countries and they confiscate their their equivalent of their Fort Knox. That's a, a money source too. Some of that might make it to the US government and some of it might make it get siphoned off to the intelligence agencies. So uh Money is not seen to be a problem problem for them. The size of the operation speaks to the fact that they're not starving for funds. You never see a CIA <laughs> bake sale down at the corner. Yeah, yeah. And, and you talk about you know the seizure of foreign patents. I'm curious as well. Do you believe that they're also profiting off of thousands of domestic patents that have been seized since the Invention Secrecy Act of 1951? Who knows? That, of course, is classified, and I don't have any security clearance, so I don't know, but it's a reasonable surmise. Certainly, uh, the intelligence agencies have operated rather high-handedly with, in many cases, 
little regard for the actual law. Uh, sort of they use secrecy very pragmatically. If their motto is "If I can get away with it, nobody knows. Why not? After all, we need to get ahead of those damn Russians or Chinese or whoever the latest enemy is." But what about for folks who say, you know, that's got to be unconstitutional? Like, where is the accountability? Various enterprising Congress members have tried to rein in the intelligence agencies over the decades with uh, smashingly poor success. Agencies are more nimble, powerful, and misuse their authority and secrecy and wealth and uh, tricks and technical equipment to run circles around in investigating agencies, civilian investigating agencies, and uh, they're always a step ahead, and they're not afraid of using strong-arm tactics if anybody gets too close to what they're doing. So, um, most inquiries by reform groups into mis uses and abuse of authority of intelligence agencies don't get very far. And you also touched on the importance of the media, and so I'm curious, what ways are the intelligence agencies able to influence the media to keep the word from getting out? Well, uh, books have been written about that and uh, how the CIA, for one, has planted its people in various levels of uh, let's say the broadcast industry, ABC, CBS, NBC, so forth, I suppose PBS, etc. And uh, in, news, in news magazines, I'm going to date myself mentioning things like Life and Look, which don't exist anymore, but used to be weekly news magazines everybody bought by the millions. And uh, certainly the newspapers, uh, intelligence people are infiltrated into the workforce of these papers and are therefore in an excellent position to report on what the papers are have found and are about to publish. And if it's hot enough, uh, sensitive enough to the power brokers that they don't want it published, the story gets killed. And they can use tools like economic sanctions. You publish that story and you're going to have a lot of trouble meeting your budget because some of your advertisers are going to dry up. There are many ways you can use the levers of influence to uh, make sure that organizations, whether it's broadcast news or newspapers or radio or television, don't say what you don't want said. And if they're doing exposés, make sure the exposés are watered down and nothing really juicy gets revealed. So do you think that we have a free press that is protected by the First Amendment? Well, we do and we don't. We have. Uh, however, to get back to our UFO topic, the fact that until last year or so, those uh, Navy uh, fighter gun camera videos of UFOs dogging aircraft carriers and uh, being caught on film in flight, skipping around the ocean. Uh, the 
fact that that story, in other words, the military and intelligence community reluctantly uh, admitting that much, uh, shows you the power of the secrecy industry, if I may call it that, that is hand in glove with the power brokers in this country that we should have known from the Roswell crash, which was a mistake. Some idiot in the Army issued a news release that the Army had captured a UFO. The next day, of course, they took it back. But too late. The photos of wreckage were released. The story was released on the wire services. That's the only uh, government admission of UFO reality until our Navy fighter pilots showed their gun camera footage in the last several years. That's 75 years of secrecy, government denial. So it, it can be done. And there's an enormous industry making sure that it can be done. And, you know, I think a major event within those 75 years that occurred, you know, not approved by the military, though, was uh, Bob Lazar and his testimony about his work at Area 51. So I'm, I'm curious, could you provide a little bit of context on his story and, and how you came to know Bob? Yeah, I don't want to misrepresent myself as a close buddy of Bob Lazar. I think our interests in many ways align, but uh, I've heard Bob lecture at several UFO conferences and said hi and that I admire his work. And of course, I've seen the expose documentaries on his work uh, on television. there are two very excellent ones that portray his saga of trying to get out the story of how he worked at uh, S4, uh, the secret lab that is 30 miles south of the Area 51 base, and uh, where basically the most extreme advanced uh, scientific investigation uh, of UFOs technology. Things are torn apart and analyzed there, and uh, American copycat technology attempted to be created there and then exported to other uh, military industrial facilities for production. And the work with extraterrestrial there, trying to communicate with them, debrief them, understand what they have to say, and indeed what they predict is coming up. I have on my website a tape of an interrogation of a extraterrestrial Zeta Reticulin. It was shortly after, uh, it was some years after the UFO crash. June 64. That's, that's Now, way back in June 64, I bet you weren't even hatched then. <laughs> I know you weren't even hatched then. But I was hatched, and uh, in fact, in 64, I was 25. Um, the uh, Extraterrestrial has some interesting things to say. I do encourage people to see that or some other on my website or other places where this Project Blue Book alien interview is is featured. 
because he had a lot of good things to say about the future, uh, about global nuclear war that is going to happen around now, this decade, if we don't watch it, we, how an American presidential can, uh, candidate, if people don't vote right, is going to stir up a global nuclear war. Uh, but this shows that uh, the military back in 64, uh, let me do the quick math here, 2022 minus 1954 equals 68 years ago, the NSA knew that not only ETs are real and UFOs are real, but they knew about the future. Uh, and all this important information uh, been suppressed. Well, suppressed uh, except for a few power brokers that get to have the crown jewels, as they say in the intelligence community, of what the insiders know, and everybody else is kept in the dark. So they have a kind of unfair advantage of knowing the future, and most of the governmental leaders and the general public don't know the future, so uh, that's, that's a power edge for those folks. And we'll include uh, a link to your website in the show notes so people can check out those videos themselves. It's Dr. Boylan, B-O-Y-L-A-N.com. Correct. And right at the beginning of my website, there's three announcements. The number three announcement is a UFO crash survivor awards a worldwide nuclear war and human mutating radiation this decade if Americans elect a presidential candidate who is autocratic, anti-science, and fake religious. If this candidate is elected, he will stir up fear and great division, fomenting culture wars and racial and religious tribalism. This potential president will go on to be condemned globally. To avoid being removed from power, he will disrupt by ordering scores of nuclear strikes which, of course, will be retaliated by other nuclear powers. And the resulting cloud of radiation from all of these weapons going off will cause megadeath and the disfigurement of the remaining human race. That was his warning. It was a nice warning. It's really important to put a, make an understatement. And yet the agencies have been sitting on this damn thing for over six decades. Did they give a timeline for when that president would be elected or a name? No. Uh, you should. The uh, Zeta Reticulin in interrogation speaks very clearly and, and understandably. I cannot replace urging people to watch the interview. It's only three and a half minutes before he gets cut off. But uh, he gets all that out, and you won't. You won't hear it in your high school civics class, but by God, it's information you need to know when you're conducting yourself as a citizen and going to the voting booth. And so this uh, Zeta Reticulin, is that a specific star that this ET comes from? The Zetas have been around a long time. In fact, they've been around for millennia. This fellow and the, the Zetas that uh, visit Earth have 
this one, uh, have time travel back from the future. That's why they know the future. Uh, they live, their are people who have lived through that and beyond, but he time travel back to uh, watch where we are, Americans on our timeline, uh, and they decided the way things were heading in human affairs, this warning needed to be given so that people didn't destroy a whole planet and a whole human race. The idea that a planet is a yeah. terrible thing to waste, you know. Uh, so he tried to give this warning, but it was smothered and uh, suppressed by the intelligence agencies in the way they know so well how to do. Somebody who you might recognize the name if you heard it, but I'm not going to say it here, but uh, somebody who used to work in NSA and uh, on his way out the door decided this particular videotape deserves, the public deserves to have it see the light of day, and so it has. Wow. So I want to dive a little bit further into the technology that's been recovered off these ET craft. Um, and uh, you've mentioned anti-gravity a few times, so why don't we start there? Alrighty. Uh, much has been done over the decades in anti-gravity work. Uh, almost all of it is plagiarized shamelessly from working with extraterrestrial anti-gravity craft, back engineering them as best humans can understand their technology. And by talking with extraterrestrial visitors, or in some cases captives, who've been interrogated and uh, given up what they know, uh, so that as, as, as I witnessed for several decades, the uh, low-level faltering efforts of uh, early UFOs, I penetrated Area 51 and saw a test flight of a anti -gravity, early anti-gravity craft in 95-96 uh, uh, in a side canyon, and it was bouncing around didn't seem to be under great good control, and uh, it would. Uh, this is at night, and it, it had illumination around it. I think the energy pouring off it uh, illuminated uh, it to a degree, and there was also a spotlight from the uh, test area that illuminated it, and it would uh, bounce around, kind of nervously jittery, uh, at a very low altitude. By this, I mean maybe 20, 30 feet max probably about 25 feet off the ground, and then it would disappear. And then uh, a second or two later, it would reappear over 50 feet. Now, you may say, well, maybe it turned off the lights and then turned them back on. No, the, the test range lights were on all the time, and it was uh, not hard to see. Uh, what I think it did is it went through hyperspace and reemerged. That seems to be how extraterrestrial UFOs navigate immense distances between stars. They don't just putz along at above the speed of light. They uh, move in hyperspace, take shortcuts, if you will, and come back out into regular three-dimensional space at a new location. And a hop, skip, and jump, which allows them to cover enormous distances in conventional ways of thinking of distance in a very short time. So I, I saw this uh, craft 
do that. And I said, mm-hmm. But then later, of course, we've all seen Tic Tacs jumping around in front of those Navy fighter pilots at very jerky, fast motion. One Tic Tac uh, went from near the, the surface of the ocean to like 80,000 feet in about two seconds. Well, that's, uh, that's moved rather promptly. Uh, so, uh, and this is a hybrid craft, uh, hybrid crew anyway. I don't mean biologically hybrid. I mean extraterrestrial pilot and U.S. Navy aviator pilot. Uh, but the craft is using technology that uh, is certainly better than the stuff we have had. Tic Tacs may represent this hyperspace travel technology that I saw very crudely demonstrated a couple of decades ago at Area 51. But nobody's talking for the, for the press about hyperspace jumping as an achieved American technology. I would venture to say that is so extremely tech classified that uh, that has not made it out yet. But when the Navy shows these Tic Tacs doing that kind of stuff, you can draw certain conclusions. And the fact that the Navy isn't saying this, I'm just saying this because I know independently, uh, that there are Navy aviators inside those crafts side by side with extraterrestrial pilots making those crafts fly uh, tells me that certainly our, our Navy aviators and their uh, commanding officers have access to this technology, at least to see it being executed in, in action. I don't know if the extraterrestrials have given them the blueprints to it, but they certainly know that it exists, that it works, and uh, they're actually participating in flying some of these. So it seems like uh, our scientific military are, are uh, being slowly dunked in a extraterrestrial technology one little bit at a time. So... Are you saying that hyperspace technology is actually a more advanced form of anti-gravity, or, or sorry, more, more advanced than anti-gravity or electrogravitic technologies? Well, I, I don't want to speak comparatively. I, I, I do not have a rich scientific background, to put it mildly. My, my education has been in the liberal arts and not science. And quantum theory, I read a, a little bit of it, but it is pretty much hard to understand, and I haven't had much education in that area. But there are people, obviously, on Earth, humans, who understand quantum technology and its application well, and certainly in military advanced classified labs, this stuff is being worked on and translated into working hardware. And uh, I don't know for a fact whether they've gotten far enough to crank out something like a tic-tac or not, clearly they can cr crank out anti-gravity. Uh, and indeed, the uh, formula for an anti-gravity craft has gotten a U.S. patent and been published in Forbes magazine, the Bible of the Affluent. Uh, so the Navy is kind of teasingly letting little dribs and drabs of what they know out to the public and even to the patent office. Uh, 
and one may assume that because they let these little dribs and drabs of things like the formula for anti gravity and so forth, and uh, uh, that uh, there's a lot more that they haven't released yet. Would it be fair to say that anti gravity is more for traveling within a specific star system, and then this? More advanced quantum technology traveling through hyperspace would be for more interstellar travel, or am I thinking about that wrong? Well, I'm, I'm going to my article here on my website on, on anti-gravity. The Navy has used a, a front man, Dr. Salvador Pice, as the inventor of these technologies. I think he's the stand-up guy, so the patent office had somebody it could talk to claims to be the inventor, but pretty clearly... Dr. Pice is, is but the front face of a lot of research in the military uh, lab circles on anti-gravity technology. The little bits they've allowed out is the, uh, some of the quantum physics conventions are a fusion reactor. Uh, this is something that gets hinted about, but it, it uses control fission, the energy source that also drives hydrogen bombs, but that, of course at a control level and very compact. Uh, I'm talking about yardstick by two yardstick. That's how small the compact reactor is, fusion reactor. And I believe that is the power source on the uh, animate uh, uh, on the uh, human. UFOs because they, they don't operate with gas or electric batteries. The energy requirements are too nor enormous for that. There's another patent the Navy has let leak called high energy electromagnetic field generator, and and then there's another one called the magnetic field disruptor. Well, electromagnetic fields are the some of the backbone of reality and uh, the well, the quantum world, the uh, basic building blocks of energy, and uh, to be able to generate electromagnetic fields at the enormously high levels that are taken to strip ordinary material of its properties and, and get it to do things that normally we would say are impossible, uh, like canceling the, uh, the uh, gravitational field around, uh, uh, let's say, a Lockheed Martin UFO. And uh, the magnetic field disruption, breaking the magnetic fields is another avenue, a lever, if you will, to disrupt Earth's gravitational field and uh, therefore operate without that constraint. And somewhere in the released information is the uh, gravitational, well, clearly the human UFOs have defeated gravitation and made of uh, Earth and made their own gravitational field inside the UFO that uh, because of the polarities of gravity uh, repels Earth 
uh, gravitational pull and is free to exert its own gravitational force, sort of pushing off of Earth to move around. Uh, I'm not very good at scientifically explaining these things, but bear with me. That uh, these technologies exist and are being harnessed. There's a reason why U.S. UFOs fly, and the Navy knows how to build its own flying saucers and has done so. And these are some of the patents for some of the technology advances that they have leaked, quote unquote, out to the public. They're uh, they're trying to simultaneously keep as much secret as uh, national security seems to require, and yet let the world know little bits about what's going on so we don't mistake everything up in the sky for extraterrestrial visits because some of the stuff lying around is ours. That started back, I don't know if you remember, in Brussels, there was a triangular anti-gravity craft that floated very low to the ground uh, above traffic in Brussels at night, and Belgian policemen photographed it and even videotaped it night after night that that summer, and uh, then it went away. But uh, that was the first sneak peek of a successfully operating U.S. UFO anti-gravity craft, and it was done near the capital of NATO, Brussels. Uh, sort of saying, uh-huh, we're, we got this. Y'all catch up with us if you can. Uh, and I'll fast forward decades to the tic tacs you see today, which I suspect are copycats of extraterrestrial technology. And uh, they're so advanced that the Navy aviators have to have extraterrestrial aviators on board, too. To combined effort, everybody to get these things to fly successfully for demonstration near U.S. Air, aircraft carriers. Uh, but little by little, we're, we're getting to see the U.S. side of anti-gravity technology begin to come out from behind the curtain, but I, I would guess there's a lot more there we haven't seen um, yet. And so you talk on your website you know, about there being actually 14 vehicles that have been created that you know of using reverse-engineered extraterrestrial technologies, you know, with groups like Northrop Grumman and Boeing and, and Lockheed and, and the like. Um, and, you know, as you talk about the Tic Tacs having both Navy pilots as well as extraterrestrial pilots, I'm curious, how were you uh, able to ascertain and, and come by all of this information? I, uh, as for the various uh, anti U.S. anti-gravity craft over the years, 15 actually, I found out about one more than when I said 14 a while back. Leaks from people inside that I trust and believe. Some of this is in the uh, expose literature. Uh, some of it is uh, I've seen for myself. And I use, in some cases, uh, few, but some cases I use my ability to detect whether something is true or not. I work with what some might call parapsychological ESP 
technology, quote unquote, uh, to ascertain whether something is true or not. And when you have a, something like, is that craft using human or extraterrestrial anti-gravity technology, a yes or no question answer allows me to jump ahead from attributing everything advanced to the ETs to knowing that some, some items are of human manufacture. So multimodal information sources, leaks by people like Bob Lazar and uh, all the uh, various military intelligence guys that have given me information uh, over the years. Uh, I have a section on my site. Let me give a little credit where credit is due here. Um, I call it insiders who have leaked secret UFO information. Dr. Michael Wolf of the MJ-12 committee and on the National Security Council told me a bunch of stuff before he died. Colonel Steve Wilson told me a lot before he died uh, about military contractors, SAIC and others uh, using secret extraterrestrial technology. Dan Sherman of uh, the Air Force and NSA uh, talked about receiving extraterrestrial messages as his assignment. Uh, Colonel Philip Corso, of course, worked for the Army and the Pentagon, and he put out a book. It was quite a striking book. He says how it was his assignment to take secret extraterrestrial technology retrieved from crash saucers and spread it out into certain advanced technology programs in military and civilian labs, and in many cases not tell them this is ET stuff. It's just something quote unquote, our people developed and we think you should know about it and see what you can do with it. And some of the giant, giant leaps that American technology has taken over the last few decades are due to being seeded and hyped up with uh, extraterrestrial technology that they didn't know was extraterrestrial. They just thought there's some smart scientist somewhere that came on something and they ought to go with it and run with it. Uh, and of course, as worthy uh, individuals, Apollo astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell, a Navy aviator, uh, besides getting to the moon and back, uh, senses made, and I had the pleasure of talking to him and making his acquaintance, uh, said the UFOs are real and a cover up exists. And he talked a bit about it and how qu quantum principles are key to understanding some of this stuff. So I've had numbers of and other people, but those are the most notable ones. But I've had sources that know what they're talking about from the inside that have shared what they know, some of it publicly, some of it individually. And, and so I'm quite confident with what I'm saying and putting out on my website is not just conjecture, but actual yeah, that facts. Makes sense. And, and Edgar Mitchell's definitely been someone who's been a huge inspiration to me as well. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on the Apollo missions in the sense of, you know, if we've had very advanced technologies using anti-gravity and, and potentially now this hyperspace technology, you know, for decades, 
Why were the Apollo missions done using kind of traditional rocket fuel propulsion techniques? Well, I don't think anybody is saying that we had, we as the American scientific community, governmental scientists, had any gravity technology well understood and well executed at the time of the Apollo missions. But they certainly had more advanced technology than the Apollo rockets. In fact, some scientific insiders have said that uh, it's criminal that they sent good Navy aviators up in those tin cans when better technology existed. The early jump into anti-gravity was gra gravity-diminished aircraft. For example, the B-2, a Navy uh, colonel told me, uh, had gravity-diminishing technology aboard. I should say is, is still flying. Um, in other words, before he had full craft fully released from Earth's gravity pull and free to operate on their own, you had ones that still had Earth's gravity pull on them, but diminished so that they could perform much more nimbly and, and rapidly and, and brightly than a heavy craft that's held in the air by jet engines pushing it fast enough so that air over the wings lifts it. Uh, so gravity assisted, and I think the, if I recall, the uh, stealth, one of the stealth fighters, maybe the F-22 was, I suspect the, uh, the F-15 stealth, but the F-22 too. Uh, I saw a demonstration at an air show at uh, Sacramento at McClellan Air Force Base. Uh, the field after after the nuclear bombers were retired from there, uh, they did an air show with I think it was an F twenty two a navy uh, a navy uh, major woman took this F twenty two and brought it in close. Uh, now it was I'm sorry it was the uh, it was a stealth fighter because it had directional vector jets on the wing. And uh, he brought it, you know, to a stop where it, uh, you know, the there's a, a variant of the uh, stealth fighter that is made for Navy carriers where it can stop and just lower itself down and then take off vertically from the carrier deck later. Uh, balancing the thrust forward and the thrust down to keep keep it in the air without moving, kind of poor man's anti-gravity. It, it has anti has gravity diminishing technology on board, but it also has a very nimble combination of uh, forward motion uh, thrust and and downward pushing thrust that allows it to stay in the air without having to move. And she made it sit up on its nose and slowly rotate around one way and then around the other way, motionless except for spinning on its nose very slowly. 
and then dance a little bit. Well, this this was not a pure anti-gravity craft, but the combination of her artistry with the the vectoring of the of the jet thrust plus the reduction in gravity, I believe, is what allowed her to be so nimble. It was a jaw-dropping performance. I can't believe they showed it to the civilian public. Uh, I just walked away from there, and to this day, I can't believe the artistry of, of, of that demonstration. So we, we've had the technology for a while, and we're getting better at using it. And once in a while, the public gets to see the tax dollars that work with a little display and hint of what it is. Hmm. That's so interesting. And why do you think it is that, you know, the uh, whole idea of the, the moon landings being faked is a idea that picked, so much, picked up so much steam in the past? Well, some of that's disinformation and, uh, you know, who knows where it's all coming from. I think maybe some other jealous countries want to say that that stuff isn't real. Uh, some of it's a ham-handed attempt to keep people thinking we're still farther back than we are. Not only do we actually have the technology to, in our rocket science, rocketry science, thanks to uh, Von Braun and his buddies and uh, many decades of American scientists that have advanced this, we could we got got to the moon without any fakery on just thrust technology. It was a big chore, but we got there, got it done. But obviously, that's crude. And uh, if you have the ability to flip between star systems through hyperspace, uh, you don't want to stick with burning uh, mm -hmm. rocket fuel as your only way of getting from point A to point B. So do you think we've continued to go to the moon after the ending of the Apollo missions? Well, there, you know, there was the famous uh, Apollo 13 that broke down on the way back, and the uh, classified version of its return is that an extraterrestrial craft that spot, spotted its difficulties, uh, they, they had a, one of their officers come on board and, and fix it. Uh, do a fix and uh, allow it to limp back to Earth. But uh, there are other flights since. But reliable reports, both U.S. and and Soviet and Russian, have, have shown structures on the moon. Uh, some of these are ancient extraterrestrial. Uh, buildings uh, that are so old that the people that build them aren't even around anymore. There are certainly extraterrestrial craft to this day flitting along the surface of the moon. I mean, not on, on the ground all the time, but in the air, but close to the moon. Uh, and so uh, We've we've and they we've gone well beyond Apollo thirteen. The uh, one of my on my website one of my announcements is of a. Let me go to the section here. 
announcement number one, I think. Um, Earth has a space fleet conducting security patrols in space for Earth. This is, of course, Solar Warden. Uh, it has been discovered by a British UFO hacker who hacked into classified government computers and found out that there's a whole fleet that the Navy doesn't publicly mention because it isn't navigating salt water, it's up in space. And uh, it is a fleet of craft, anti-gravity craft, if you will, spacecraft, whose uh, job is to patrol uh, the solar system with emphasis on Earth and keeping uh, things safe, uh, mostly from hostile countries trying to launch nuclear missiles against other countries, that they would get intercepted when they reached space and eliminated so they didn't come back down and blow somebody or some city up. But also, the extraterrestrials have uh, star visitors, I'll call them, uh, have indicated to the U.S. government that we should begin to prepare for an era where we provide our own security instead of them providing security for us as they have all the time. That while rare in, in, in our parts, there are civilizations out there that you wouldn't want to particularly come visit Earth. They, not that they would destroy it, that's science fiction, but that they might want to control things. So the organization of high-minded civilizations that have sort of befriended us and kept us safe for all these millennia from such rogue civilizations wants us to take over the chore ourselves when we get good enough at space navigation. So we're starting out with space patrols near Earth for the twin task of intercepting any human nuclear missile exchanges, but also the occasional wandering society from some other star that might want to interfere with Earth in a way that would be harmful to us because we aren't prepared for what they might have to say or tell. And so there are a fleet of 102 small patrol craft and 17 larger outer space-sized craft that uh, are part of this space fleet. And uh, Navy and Marine aviators operate these vessels. Uh, TR-3As are deep space vessels. TR-3Bs are delta-shaped, triangular-shaped uh, anti-gravity craft to patrol near Earth. And uh, this stuff is real. It's from an 
from an interstellar space multi-civilization point of view, we're at the primitive end of space uh, navigation, but uh, we're starting. We have one, maybe two, anti-gravity craft that uh, are capable of transiting from our solar system to another solar system. The, the star nations, the governing, the good guys governing group for our galaxy, doesn't want us wandering out there visiting other star systems so we clean up our act at home more. Uh, obviously, Earth has room for improvement as a society before we try to export it to other star systems. But they, they want us to get ready enough so that when we do clean our act up, we have the tools to visit other star systems and invite them to come and take a, a look at us. Right now, we would want to do that. We, we would be a visit that would not help our reputation in the greater galaxy, put yeah. it mildly. Yeah. But that day will is come. that friendly organization, is that the same as what's been kind of termed the, the Galactic Confederation? Well, that's somebody's term. The official term is Star Nations. And uh, that's the one the Native Americans used, interestingly enough. I talked to Lakota uh, shaman, if you will, Standing uh, Elk, and uh, others. And they, they agree the Star Nations is the nomenclature among the Native American group because they've been visited by them. And they don't have the CIA telling them they can't believe that. So, they, in a sense, the Native peoples have been way ahead of us in terms of star people contact and being almost a matter of fact about it. Uh, so, star nations is the term, and is good enough for me. And I've talked to several extraterrestrials who don't seem to have a problem with that terminology from their point of view. So, I, I submit that that's as close to official as we get for calling the good guys governance console in in our galaxy. So Milky Way's inter, uh, uh, galactic government is darnation. <laughs> End of story. That's great. So then, uh, you know, you talk about how we need to clean up our act here on Earth. So I guess the question for me is, you know, where do we go from here? Especially with a topic like the extraterrestrial phenomenon where... So much is done in secret. You know, you could, it's very difficult to understand what's the truth, what people's true intentions are. I mean, how can the average citizen get educated on the subject, and, and how can we, frankly, clean up our act? Well, the problem is that there's so much disinformation out there, and there are groups and individuals peddling it as hard as they can. Some of them misguided government efforts, but a lot of it's just well, very sophisticated propaganda programs by the uh, people behind the curtain who like to control human society, and they want to keep people scared and cowering and intimidated. And so they keep peddling all that bad guy stuff. Uh, if if you don't believe 
the star visitors are bad guys, and I I worked with so many uh, therapists and and others who have interviewed people who had visits by them and contact and been helped and in some cases healed and uh, by them. Uh, certainly, on a scientific sampling basis, we'd have to say that the the visits by genuine star visitors to humans have been unendingly positive, uh, respectful, and and helpful, and trying to uh, give us information to pass to people we talk to that uh, help to understand more who they are, why they're here, and uh, and that we're not alone, and that uh, they look forward to the day when we get our act together and can start to travel out to the stars and invite them in to visit our homes and our our communities and not get shot at. They would love the UFO cover-up to come to an end and they're being free to come in and visit. Uh, and they watch how we treat uh, groups seeking to immigrate uh, from one country or another, they begin to wonder if we're ready yet. What do you think? Do you think we're ready? No. I think we could be, but we need to recalibrate the way we do society. There's very corrupt countries with run as by autocrats uh, that do not honor and behave according to the dignity of the human person. Uh, the most fundamental human rights are agreed to across the galaxy because they're basically intelligent being human uh, rights, if you will. Uh, but some of our countries don't operate that way, and there are people who have too much wealth and power and, and uh, ego. Uh, that that rule by terror, and that's no way to run a country. It's no way to run a planet. Certainly, no way to run a galaxy. And they don't want any of it. And we we've got some unfinished business. We have an organization which they, by the way, uh, encourage the development of after World War II, and that's the United Nations. You read the United Nations Charter. It, it talks about countries working together cooperatively in peace for the good of the, the whole. And that's the way it should be. Anybody who d isn't operating that way, we know we could name on our two hands the countries that don't operate that way, need to clean up their act. And we need the, the good guy countries, if you will, the democracies uh, <clears throat> need to use the potential of the United Nations to enforce changing uh, the governments that are run by autocrats, put them out of business and replace them with democracies and and to uh, be much more fair with the way we distribute wealth and resources uh, so that everybody has a chance at a dignified human life. Once we get our own planet and society in order, then we are fit for export to other star systems. Where would you put the United States on that spectrum of good guy nations to autocrats? 
Oh, Lordy. <laughs> you would have. <laughs> uh, well, if I was using report card numbers, I'd give the United States about a 75. In other words, barely passing, but but passing, but obviously improvement <laughs> needed. That's what the teacher would say at report card time. Jimmy, you 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 passed the test, but my God, there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> and then a country, countries like uh, China and Russia and uh, Hungary and a few other principalities, uh, they're working on a, a good solid F. They need to get it, get it together. I'll tell you, a country that impresses me, impresses an awful lot of people, the people of Ukraine. How they, you talk about being tested under fire and coming up looking like, smelling like a rose. I would say the people of Ukraine have done a smashing job, a magnificent job of uh, bearing up under horrible injustices and violence, and yet not sinking to the same level as the invader, but uh, retaining their humanity and appealing for the situation to improve according to the best potential of what humans can be. And that's, that's sort of a model of what we need to get going all Absolutely. over the world. Well, Dr. Boylan, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I just want to thank you again for, for coming uh, on the show and, and more importantly for you know, spending decades of work trying to you know, bring out the truth and, and expose it even at the expense of you know, your personal career and, and what I'd imagine was you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of ridicule over the decades. So thank you again for, for taking the time, and I really appreciate uh, this conversation. Okay, if, if I may, in a burst of immodesty, uh, uh, urge people to, if you want to get educated on the UFO phenomenon, if you read my website, drboylan.com, uh, you will be armed with enough information and zero disinformation, zero lies in there, all truth, to uh, be prepared to take your place in the new dawning civilization that will have star visitors coming to visit us more often and more openly. And that future is very, very near. We need to make it such, make it so, as they say in Star Trek. Absolutely. Let's make it so. All right. Thanks again. Have a great rest of the uh, afternoon. You bet. Nice talking to you. And all the best, huh? Absolutely. Take care. I don't know shit about shit. If there's one thing I've learned since my spiritual awakening, it's that I don't know shit about shit. After one year of exploring everything I could find about the ET phenomenon and its relationship to consciousness, this interview with Dr. Boylan was a stark reminder to stay humble. I had fooled myself into thinking that I was starting to understand the nuances of the situation. As physicist Richard Feynman advised, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Hilariously, this quote comes from a 1974 Caltech commencement speech where Feynman argued for the universal dismissal of topics like UFOs and psychic abilities as pseudoscience or what he labeled cargo cult science. With all due respect to Mr. Feynman, who I believe made tremendous advancements in quantum physics, 
This dismissal of serious fields of inquiry is entirely unscientific. Unfortunately, this condescending attitude pervades conventional science and is one of the driving forces behind why we remain locked in a reductionist, mechanistic paradigm despite the abundance of support for a consciousness-based paradigm. Perhaps Mr. Feynman would have done well to take his own advice and to recognize his own blind spots. As it relates to recognizing blind spots, the book Think Again by Adam Grant is one of the most important I've ever read. In his book, Grant argues that keeping an open mind is a teachable skill, that often the most intelligent people are the least effective at re-examining preconceived notions, that being good at thinking can make us worse at rethinking. I had the good fortune to read Grant's book one month before my worldview was turned upside down when I was introduced to metaphysics in the ET phenomenon. Coincidence or synchronicity? Adam Grant also discusses the Dunning-Kruger effect in his book. The effect shows that it's when we lack competence on a specific subject that we're most likely to be brimming with overconfidence. Lacking confidence can leave us blind to our own incompetence. We're prone to overconfidence in situations where it's easy to confuse experience for expertise. Falling victim to the Dunning-Kruger effect or the armchair expert syndrome is one of the blind spots I repeatedly fall victim to, and Dr. Boyland's interview proved to me that the ET phenomenon is no exception. But as I search for truth in this topic, it's important to stay humble and to learn from the experts who have been studying the subject matter for decades. Learning from them while at the same time attempting to discern truth from the abundance of disinformation that clouds our understanding of the extraterrestrial phenomenon. With all that said, I thought it would be helpful to put together a timeline of major extraterrestrial-related events over the past 75 years. I have a high degree of conviction that the blow events happened. There are a number of other events I believe happened, but don't yet have enough confidence to put into writing. Suffice it to say, the story just keeps getting crazier. As you consider the below timeline, I ask you to keep in mind two possibilities. First, that the true nature of reality may be far weirder and more complicated than we've been led to believe. And number two, you may not know shit about shit. A Timeline of Extraterrestrial Events July 1947, Roswell, New Mexico Three UFOs crash near the Roswell Army Air Force Base, the home to the 509th Bomber Squadron, and the only wing in the world at the time equipped with nuclear weapons. The UFOs were shot down by an Air Force weapon, likely a scalar or longitudinal wave weapon. Two of the craft were recovered immediately, the third a few years later. Each of the craft was manned by several extraterrestrials. One of them recovered from the first crash site, survived the crash, and was held for three years until getting sick and dying in captivity. They referred to the surviving ET as Eben, short for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. Despite the ensuing government and military cover-ups, there remains an abundance of eyewitness and documented evidence supporting the fact that the events in Roswell did actually occur, including an FBI memorandum from a field agent discussing three so-called flying saucers. The FBI memorandum written to J. Edgar Hoover and available on the FBI's website, is dated March 22, 1950, and reads, The following information was furnished to SAC. 
An investigator for the Air Force stated that three so-called flying saucers had been recovered in New Mexico. They were described as being circular in shape with raised centers approximately 50 feet in diameter. Each one was occupied by three bodies of human shape, but only three feet tall, dressed in a metallic cloth of a very fine texture. Each body was bandaged in a similar manner to the blackout suits used by speed flyers and test pilots. The military immediately recognized the wealth of advanced technologies that could be reverse engineered from the craft and went into hyperdrive to cover up the incident. President Truman signed the National Security Act into law, and within weeks, the CIA was formed, along with the U.S. Air Force, which was split off from the Army Air Force. July 1947 through January 1953, the Truman Presidency. The military's electromagnetic scalar weapon continued to bring down extraterrestrial spacecraft following the Roswell incident, despite every indication that the ETs present in our airspace were non-hostile. President Truman, who was already dealing with the fallout from World War II and the escalation of the Cold War, formed a committee to study the ET phenomenon. The military recognized these technologies could provide a tactical advantage over the Soviet. Some of the most important technologies subsequently reverse-engineered include anti-gravity propulsion, the harnessing of the zero-point field for infinite and free energy generation, and the science of consciousness, or what we might otherwise refer to as psychic abilities. Here's a section of a memo Wilbert B. Smith, a radio engineer, wrote to the Canadian Department of Transportation in November 1951. The existence of a different technology is borne out by the investigations which are being carried on at the present moment in relation to flying saucers. Number one, the matter is the most highly classified subject in the United States government, rating higher than the H-bomb. Number two, flying saucers exist. Number three, their modus operandi is unknown but a concentrated effort is being made by a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. And number four, the entire matter is considered by the United States authorities to be of tremendous significance. Truman's committee then formed a secret task force called Project Sign, which evolved into Project Grudge to study the ET phenomenon. Part of the committee's response to the ET phenomenon was to coordinate a psychological warfare tactic in convincing people that UFOs did not exist, even though thousands of people had reported seeing them. High-profile astronomers and physicists were brought out to tell the world that UFOs were not real. This tactic worked extremely well and continued to snowball for 70 years, such that anyone conducting serious research into the ET phenomenon was ridiculed and dismissed. That finally started to change in December of 2017 when the Pentagon, for the first time, acknowledged the existence of UFOs. During Truman's presidency, the military also launched Project Blue Book to investigate reports of unexplained aircraft sightings and brought on astronomer J. Allen Hynek, then director of Ohio State University's Macmillan Observatory, for the project. Heinrich was later joined in his research by Dr. Jacques Vallée, an astrophysicist and computer scientist. In reality, Blue Book was a disinformation campaign designed to fool the public. Heinrich, who led Blue Book until 1969, 
later said the intention of Blue Book had been to debunk these cases, not to inform the public. In 1951, President Truman signed the Invention Secrecy Act into law. This law was designed to prevent disclosure of new inventions and technologies that, in the opinion of selected federal agencies, present a possible threat to the national security of the United States. A secrecy order bars the award of a patent, orders that the invention be kept secret, restricts the filing of foreign patents, and specifies procedures to prevent disclosure of ideas contained in the application. Effectively, the Invention Secrecy Act extended the intelligence agency's monopoly on new technologies, not just reverse-engineered ET technologies, but to those developed by human scientists as well. As of year-end 2017, the intelligence agencies had seized 5,784 patents, suppressing them based on government secrecy orders. During the post-World War II years, the intelligence agencies also organized Operation Paperclip. Paperclip was an attempt to scour occupied Germany for as much military, scientific, and technological development research as they could uncover. Roughly 1,600 German scientists were brought back to the U.S. on America's behalf during the Cold War, many of them receiving forged documents from the CIA to hide their war crimes. One of these scientists was Dr. Werner von Braun, the technical director at the Penamundi Army Research Center, who was instrumental in developing the V-2 rocket for Germany. Von Braun later became director of NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center and the chief architect of the Saturn V launch vehicle. January 1953 to January 1961, the Eisenhower presidency. Shortly after taking office, President Eisenhower enlisted the help of his friend Nelson Rockefeller, a fellow member of the Council on Foreign Relations, to reorganize national security. Rockefeller decided to set up a new agency solely dedicated to UFO encounters, while also overseeing the incredible technologies being acquired through reverse engineering the craft. Majestic 12 was launched a year later as an independent agency operating on a black budget. The initial members included Nelson Rockefeller, Secretary of Defense Charles Wilson, CIA Director Alan Dulles, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Admiral Arthur Radford, and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. There were additionally six men selected from the Council on Foreign Relations and six from the nation from the Jason Society, a scientific group formed during the Manhattan Project. Policies could only be mandated by a majority vote of 12 out of 18 members, hence the name Majestic 12 or MJ-12. Over the ensuing decades, Majestic 12 has gone through a number of organizational and name changes, including to C-Corps, MAGIC, PI-40, and now MAGI, the Majority Intelligence Committee. The details of how this organization developed are outside the scope of this essay, but suffices to say that through their control of unacknowledged special access programs, or USAPs, embedded deep within black operations of the intelligence community, this group has grown to become the most powerful organization in the world. This includes the governments of every country in the world. The compartmentalized web of organizations controlled by MAGI 
have effectively unlimited access to funding, including from illegal appropriation of federal defense spending, the licensing of technologies seized by human scientists and reverse engineered from ET craft through shell companies, and profiteering off of the international drug trade. While I recognize that Majestic 12 could have been formed out of fear and as a reaction to the potential that Soviets would weaponize these technologies, I've become increasingly convinced that their motivations today are completely self-serving and in opposition to the well-beings of humans around the world. Their motivations include, number one, greed. War is a very profitable enterprise, and by maintaining a monopoly on these technologies and constantly propagating tribalistic fears, this group has been able to profit from every armed conflict around the world over the past 75 years. Their entanglement with the fossil fuel industry has further forced the world to be held hostage to our existing energy infrastructure grid, despite the fact that these reverse-engineered technologies have the ability to generate infinite free energy from the zero-point field. Number two, power and control. By suppressing the truth, this group has been able to lay the groundwork for a disclosure event that frames the ET phenomenon explicitly as a threat. As we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic, a fearful populace is more willing to defer to experts rather than thinking for themselves. And number three, religious extremism. Several members at the top of this organization may even be motivated by religious extremism and a desire to draw Earth into an interplanetary war. The intended purpose of this war would be to force Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. What the fuck? Majestic 12 became increasingly compartmentalized away from legal, constitutional chain of command oversight and control during Eisenhower's presidency, a trend which has only accelerated in the subsequent decades. This organization is exactly what Eisenhower was referring to in his famous Beware the Military-Industrial Complex Farewell Address. Here is President Eisenhower in January 1961. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. March 1967, the CIA and media entanglement. Ramparts Magazine breaks a story indicating the CIA and NSA's secret funding of education groups such as the National Student Association. Over the next decade, several investigations would probe the CIA's ties with the news media, including Carl Bernstein's Rolling Stone cover story published in 1977 titled The CIA and the Media. Bernstein, who had famously broken the Watergate scandal a few years earlier with Carl Woodward, 
reported in this article that 400 American journalists had carried out assignments for the CIA over the past 25 years. The CIA's involvement with the press began during the earliest days of the Cold War, when Alan Dulles, who became CIA director in 1953, sought to establish a recruiting and cover capability within America's most prestigious journalistic institutions. During a 1976 investigation of the CIA by the Senate Intelligence Committee, the Church Committee, the depth of the agency's involvement with the press became apparent to several members of the panel. But top officials of the CIA, including former directors William Colby and George H.W. Bush, persuaded the committee to restrict its inquiry into the matter and to deliberately misrepresent the actual scope of the activities in its final report. Constitutional attorney Daniel Sheehan has served the public interest for decades in exposing some of the most important legal cases of government corruption, including the Pentagon Papers, the Watergate break-in, and Iran-Contra. Mr. Sheehan first came across the CIA's involvement with the press, known as Project Mockingbird, during his time representing the New York Times in the early 1970s. At the time, 42 CIA and NSA people were employed at national news agencies. Mockingbird has never been officially discontinued, and insiders report that the intelligence agency's relationship with the press has played a key role in their ability to maintain secrecy and their cover-up of UFOs and extraterrestrials. February 5, 1971, Apollo 14. Edgar Mitchell becomes the sixth man to walk on the moon as part of the Apollo 14 mission. Mitchell experienced transcendental states of consciousness while in space, which convinced him of the connection between consciousness, space, and extraterrestrials. I'll return to the importance of consciousness as it relates to time and space later in this essay. Upon returning to Earth, he founded and ran the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which remains to this day one of the few academic institutions taking the science of consciousness seriously. Here are two Edgar Mitchell quotes on field consciousness and the extraterrestrial phenomenon. Number one, I theorize that there is a spectrum of consciousness available to human beings. At one end is material consciousness. At the other end is what we call field consciousness. Where a person is at one with the universe, perceiving the universe. Just by looking at our planet on the way back, I saw or felt a field consciousness state. Number two. Yes, there have been ET visitations. There have been crashed craft. There have been materials and bodies recovered. And there is some group of people somewhere that may or may not be associated with the government at this point, but certainly were at one point, that have this knowledge. They have been attempting to conceal this knowledge or not permit it to be widely disseminated. I cannot answer who these people are, but there is a lot of evidence that points to what I call a clandestine group, people who have some quasi-affiliation with government and certain government facilities, but who operate in a very stealthy and secret way that is not generally under a high-level government control as far as I can tell. From all that I know, there have been ET visitations and may continue to be. There have been craft that have been recovered. 
There has been a certain amount of reverse engineering that has allowed some of these craft or some components to be duplicated. And yes, there are earthlings who are utilizing some of this equipment in certain ways. As to whether it's been kept secret, it's been there all along. But it has been the subject of disinformation in order to deflect attention and to create confusion so the truth doesn't come out. Disinformation is simply another method of stonewalling, and that's been used consistently for the last 50 years or so. Weather balloons over Roswell as opposed to a crashed craft of some sort, that is disinformation. We've seen that for 50 years, and it's the best way to hide something. 1974 to 1977, Werner von Braun and the final card. Werner von Braun, who was now dying of cancer, meets Dr. Carol Rosen in early 1974. Rosen at the time was a corporate manager of Fairchild Industries, a private aerospace and defense contractor. Von Braun asked Rosen to be his spokeswoman when he was too ill to speak, and the two of them spent the last four years of his life educating and fighting to keep weapons out of space. On his deathbed, Von Braun told Rosen of an elaborate, nefarious plan that had been concocted by Majestic 12 in its subsequent iterations. Here are some excerpts from Carol Rosen's testimony. What was most interesting to me was that the scare tactics strategy, he said, was being used to manipulate the decision makers and the public that those who used these scare tactics were the real enemy. Back in 1974, the Russians were the identified enemy. We were told that they had killer satellites, that they were coming to get us and control us. When I went to Russia in the early 1970s, I found out that they didn't have killer satellites, that it was a lie. In fact, the Russian leaders and people wanted peace. They wanted to cooperate with the United States and with the people of the world. Von Braun said terrorists would be identified as the next enemy, followed by third world crazies. We now call them nations of concern. Von Braun's next enemy was asteroids. He kind of chuckled the first time he said it. After asteroids, it would be what he called the alien or extraterrestrial threat, and that would be the final scare. Over and over during the four years that I knew him, he would remind me, remember, Carol, the last card is the alien card. We are going to have space-based weapons against aliens, and all of it is a lie. He was too afraid to tell me the details. I'm not sure that I could have absorbed them if he had. But there was no question that that man knew and was on the inside, because he had a need to know, I found out later. Von Braun's other concern was psychotronic weapons. He didn't discuss what they are but repeated that this was a real concern. He said the public wouldn't understand that yet, so just to focus on banning space-based weapons. Finally, Von Braun told me that there is an accelerated effort in place, that there are people who actually believe that Armageddon should happen, so we have to have these wars. In the 55 years since Von Braun's death, Carol Rosen has continued to fight for peace in space and a ban on weaponizing space through organizations including the Institute for Security and Cooperation in Outer Space and the International Association of Educators for World Peace. Dr. Rosen is currently working to support the urgent signing of the Treaty on the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space.
1976, Ben Rich and Lockheed Skunk Works. Ben Rich, the director of Lockheed Skunk Works, gave a lecture to alumni at the UCLA School of Engineering. Lockheed Skunk Works is the vision of Lockheed Martin involved in secret projects. Like Boeing Phantom Works and other secretive departments inside of private aerospace contractors, Skunk Works is believed to be highly intertwined with the USAPs on the public side of the military intelligence industrial complex. Rich ended his 1976 talk by saying, We now have the technology to take ET home. Jan Harzon was in attendance, and he asked what Rich meant by that statement and how the technology worked. Rich replied, How does ESP, extrasensory perception, work? Harzon responded, all points in space and time are equal, to which Rich replied, that's how it works. Again, this is an idea that I'll revisit later in this essay. For the time being, I ask you con to consider, could consciousness be a fifth dimension that transcends space and time? December 1980, the Bentwaters case. A major ET event occurs at Bentwaters Air Force Base in the United Kingdom, known as the Rendlesham Forest Incident. It was later learned that nuclear weapons under U.S. control had been secretly kept at Bentwaters. There have been many incidents where UFOs have taken an extreme interest in civilian and military nuclear sites. Here's Lord Hill Norton, a five-star admiral and the former head of the British Ministry of Defense, describing the Bentwaters incident. The people concerned including Colonel Holt, who was, at the time, the deputy commander of the base, and a lot of his soldiers, claimed that something from outside the Earth's atmosphere landed at their Air Force base. They went and stood by it, they inspected it, they photographed it. I believe governments fear that if they did disclose these facts, people would panic. People would rush about and jam switchboards like they did that famous day in New Jersey, when there was a spoof that the Martians had landed that people will go mad and they will jump up and down. I don't believe that at all. I've said so in print. I do not believe that people today are going to panic at that sort of information. After all, they have put up with the introduction of nuclear weapons and the destruction of two Japanese cities 50 years ago. They take as a matter of course that we can land vehicles on Mars, land to the precise instant, forecast years before. So why should they panic? They are much more interested in doing the pools or the lottery. They would shrug their shoulders and take it as a matter of course. Anyway, they don't trust politicians in my experience. What I'd like to say is that there is a serious possibility that we are being visited and have been visited for many years by people from outer space, from other civilizations. That it behooves us to find out who they are, where they come from, and what they want. This should be the subject of rigorous scientific investigation and not the subject of rubbishing by tabloid newspapers. 1988 to 1989, Bob Lazar in Area 51. Physicist Bob Lazar is hired to work at a secret Air Force base known as S-4, about 15 miles south of Area 51. Lazar is hired specifically to reverse engineer the anti-gravity propulsion system of one extraterrestrial craft. Lazar learns that his craft came from the Zeta Reticuli star system, but that a total of nine craft were housed in S-4 at the time. 
The scientists working on the technology were divided into highly compartmentalized teams focused on specific pieces of equipment in order to maintain secrecy. Lazar also highlighted the importance of stable isotopes of element 115 in the anti-gravity propulsion system on which he was working. In March 1989, Lazar takes friends out near S4 to witness test flights of these craft. He is caught by security and subsequently decides to go public with his story out of fear for his life. Lazar works with local Las Vegas investigative reporter George Knapp to break the story which instantly goes viral. The story brings renewed interest to the UFO phenomenon worldwide, not seen since the Roswell incident. In an effort to discredit his story, Lazar alleges his education and employment files were destroyed or intentionally misplaced. The Pentagon's 2017 acknowledgement of UFOs brought renewed interest to Bob's story, resulting in the 2018 documentary Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers, and Lazar's 2019 interview on Joe Rogan's podcast. 1992, John Mack and the Abduction Phenomenon Dr. John Mack, a professor of psychology at Harvard University, co-chaired the Abduction Study Conference at MIT, a landmark assembly on scientific encounters. The following year, he founded the Program for Extraordinary Experience Research, PEER, to formalize research. Mack and his colleagues worked with over 200 individuals from around the world who alleged extraterrestrial encounters. As part of his research, Mack leveraged holotropic breathwork to help his experiencers achieve transcendental states of consciousness, therein facilitating their ability to remember abduction encounters. Dr. Mack became convinced of the legitimacy of many of these experiences leading him to publish the book Abduction in 1994. In May of that year, the dean of Harvard's medical school appointed a committee of peers to confidentially review Max's clinical care and his investigation of people who'd shared alien encounters with him. This was the first time in Harvard's history that a tenured professor was subjected to such an investigation, a professor who was not suspected of professional misconduct or ethics violations. Daniel Sheehan represented Dr. Mack in the hearing, and no action was taken against Mack outside of a censure in the report for what they believed were methodological errors. During this podcast interview, Dr. Boylan explained how his legitimate research into the UFO phenomenon eventually forced him to leave traditional academia at UC Davis. Both Mack's and Boylan's stories are perfect examples of how the study of extraterrestrials has been ridiculed and dismissed within the academic community. Anyone who chooses to push ahead does so at the risk of their career. This toxic, unscientific environment creates a compounding snowball effect that reinforces the lie that ETs and their craft are not real. They are. March 22, 1992. Jacques Vallée and Psychological Warfare. Jacques Vallée writes a diary entry stating that he secured a document confirming that the CIA simulated UFO abductions in Latin America, Brazil, and Argentina as psychological warfare experiments. He publishes this entry in his latest book, Forbidden Science 4. 
March 13, 1997, the Phoenix Lights. One of the largest documented UFO sightings ever occurred this night over Phoenix. Known as the Phoenix Lights, thousands of people reported seeing lights of varying sizes between 7.30 and 10.30 p.m., including a triangular V-shaped ship several football fields long. Arizona Governor Fife Symington diffused the situation the next day by holding a press conference where he marched a staffer wearing an alien costume out on stage in handcuffs. Everyone laughed, and by ridiculing the event, Governor Symington effectively quelled any serious investigation into the encounter. Ten years later, the governor explained that he had never felt the overall situation was a matter of ridicule, but that he wanted to introduce a little levity because Arizona was on the brink of hysteria. Symington acknowledged that he too had seen the large triangular craft of unknown origin. No official investigation was ever conducted into the encounter outside of the one launched by former Phoenix City Councilwoman Frances Barnwood. Ms. Barnwood noted that she was stonewalled at every turn. Barnwood spoke with more than 700 witnesses to the event and said, the government never interviewed even one. July 1998, Colonel Philip Corso in the day after Roswell. Retired Colonel Philip J. Corso Sr. publishes The Day After Roswell. Corso was an Army intelligence officer who had personally seen deceased extraterrestrials from the Roswell crash. May 9th, 2001, The Disclosure Project and Stephen Greer. 20 military, government, and private aerospace personnel hold a press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. The Disclosure event featured eyewitnesses to unambiguous UFO and extraterrestrial events, including Dr. Carol Rosen. Dr. Stephen Greer, who'd founded the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence in the 1990s, leads the Disclosure Project event. Daniel Sheehan serves as general counsel for the Disclosure Project. The event was on a live webcast with over 250,000 people waiting online for it to begin. The next biggest webcast event at the National Press Club had been less than 25,000 people. However, the first hour of the webcast was electronically jammed, an act Greer alleges was committed by the intelligence agencies. About 800 million people around the world eventually saw the press conference, but the major media outlets were systematically contacted to take down coverage of the event. Four months later, the public's attention was taken off of the UFO cover-up following the September 11th attacks and resulting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. September 10th, 2001, financing of USAPs. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld announces that, according to some estimates, we cannot track $2.3 trillion of transactions. The total war in Iraq cost about $1 trillion. So here, Rumsfeld is acknowledging that 2.3 times that amount could not be accounted for back in 2001. Insiders believe the majority of these funds have been funneled into black operations focused on the ET cover-up, reverse engineering their technology, and other clandestine operations. This figure is estimated to have ballooned to $8 to $10 trillion in the subsequent 21 years. 
2002, Hal Putoff and Zero Point Energy. Physicist Hal Putoff and others publish a paper in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society titled Engineering the Zero Point Field and Polarizable Vacuum for Interstellar Flight. If any aspiring engineers or entrepreneurs have ideas for building applied technologies off of this paper, please contact me directly. Winter 2005, Richard Boylan and Extraterrestrial Reproduced Vehicles. Dr. Richard Boylan publishes an article titled Classified Anti-Gravity Aerospace Craft in World Affairs, the Journal of International Issues. In this article, Boylan describes 10 advanced aerospace craft leveraging extraterrestrial reverse-engineered technologies. He further breaks down the different forms of anti-gravity technology, including electrogravitic, magnetogravitic, and nucleogravitic. Boylan updated his article on his personal website in 2021 to account for the now 14 identified craft using reverse-engineered technologies. I've included two appendices to the written version of this essay, which I've published on Substack, which detail these 14 craft and provide a description of the various anti-gravity technologies. July of 2016, Richard Doty in staged abductions. Retired Air Force Intelligence Officer Richard Doty admitted on camera that USAPs within the military do indeed stage abductions to lay the psychological foundation for interplanetary conflict in the near future. Here's Richard Doty. In regards to false indications and warnings and hoaxing ET events that were made to look alien that were not, yes, OSI did that. There was a special group out of the 7602nd Air Intel Wing at Fort Belvoir who came out and did that. They had these people that had some sort of defects, anatomical defects that were brought in to fool people into thinking they were aliens. I can't give any specifics because it's still, the program is so classified. They're probably still doing it. I wouldn't doubt they're still doing it. The stage alien events. It's sensitive, very sensitive. As far as a planned false flag, that's pretty classified, pretty hush-hush. I don't think I should talk about that. December 16th, 2017. The New York Times and Pentagon Disclosure. The New York Times publishes an article in which the Pentagon, for the first time ever, acknowledges the existence of UFOs. The article is published a few months after the release of Dr. Stephen Greer's documentary and book, both titled Unacknowledged, focused on exposing the unacknowledged special access programs operating covertly and illegally from within the military intelligence industrial complex. December 4, 2018. Patent awarded for hybrid aerospace slash undersea craft. The Tic Tac? Patent US 10144532B2 is assigned to the US Navy titled Craft Using an Inertial Mass Reduction Drive. The patent refers to envisioning a hybrid aerospace undersea craft or HAWK, which can function as a submersible craft capable of extreme underwater speed and enhanced stealth capabilities. This hybrid craft would move with great ease through the air, space, and water mediums 
by being enclosed in a vacuum plasma bubble sheath due to the coupled effects of electromagnetic field-induced air and water particle repulsion and vacuum energy polarization. The patent also refers to how put-offs work on the zero-point field and how it is feasible to remove energy mass from the system by enabling vacuum polarization. Please see Dr. Boylan's discussion of Vehicle 14, commonly known as the Tic Tac, in Appendix A for further implications of this patent. December 20th, 2019. Creation of the Space Force. President Trump signs into law the creation of the U.S. Space Force, the first new standalone branch of the military since the Air Force was split off from the Army in 1947. The bill authorizes $738 billion in 2020 to be spent on the Space Force. President Trump continues to perpetuate the mentality of entering space in a warfaring manner and as a potential threat. He states, Space is the world's newest warfighting domain. Amid grave threats to our national security, American superiority in space is absolutely vital. We're leading, but we're not leading by enough, and very shortly, we'll be leading by a lot. April 7th, 2020, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Dr. Stephen Greer releases the documentary, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, which connects the ET phenomenon and government cover-up to metaphysical concepts, including the unified field of consciousness and the holographic universe. Thirteen months later, I saw the documentary for the first time, which awakened me to the truer nature of reality. Two weeks later, I decided to explore consciousness with a high dosage of LSD and experience what's known in the academic world as drug-induced ego dissolution. This direct experience of higher states of consciousness provided me with further conviction to the truth of the ET phenomenon and its relationship to consciousness. Everything I've learned over the past year since pursuing this field of inquiry, both in the literature and through direct experience, has increased my conviction in the existence of ETs and the science of consciousness. April 5th, 2022, Pentagon Document Release. The Pentagon releases more than 1,500 documents related to its Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, or ATIP, after a FOIA request filed by The Sun in 2017. The DIA, the Department of Defense's intelligence agency, said, some portions must be withheld in part due to privacy and confidentiality concerns. The reports include the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans, and this includes burns, heart problems, sleep disturbances, and even bizarre occurrences such as apparent abduction and unaccounted for pregnancy. One report, prepared for the DIA, warns that such objects may be a threat to United States interests. Unsurprisingly, the released pages continue to frame the extraterrestrial phenomenon as a threat, and hence as an excuse for ever-increasing money spent on defense. Yet none of the released documents highlight the thousands, if not millions, of peaceful encounters with civilians or the numerous eyewitness accounts from military personnel in which ETs disabled nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles. Could the intelligence community be attempting to portray a specific hostile narrative about ETs, one with limited basis in truth? And if so, to what end are they hoping to carry this narrative? And so that brings us to today, 
May of 2022. Where do we go from here? How do we develop the relationship between Homo sapiens and our friends from the stars? It's been a weird, complicated relationship so far, and we've only scratched the surface. I understand how unbelievable all of this can sound, and if you'd prefer to dismiss the above events as the ramblings of a lunatic or conspiracy theorist, that's your prerogative to do so. Yet even the most devout scientific materialists will acknowledge that, given the sheer number of stars and planets in the universe, mathematically it is almost certain that there exists other sentient beings. And even if anti-gravity and zero-point field propulsion technologies remain locked up in USAPs, Elon Musk will have humans on Mars by the end of the decade, if not sooner. So as much as interspecies diplomacy may sound like science fiction today, one way or another, this will become a practical reality in the near future. How do we expect our current leaders would develop diplomatic relations with intelligent, technologically advanced extraterrestrial species? Let's think back to the late 1400s, when the European imperialists discovered a new world in America. Did they approach the Native American peoples as friends and trade partners? Instead, they brought guns, germs, and steel and decimated the Native American population. Within 100 years of Columbus and Cortez's initial voyages, approximately 90% of the 56 million indigenous Americans had been killed by war, slavery, and wave after wave of newly introduced disease. We like to think our culture has evolved over the past 500 years, and that this type of genocide would never happen again today. But have we really? For example, part of Musk's strategy for colonizing Mars is to detonate nuclear weapons, potentially 10,000 of them, in order to terraform Mars and transform it into something more hospitable to humans. How's that as a welcome message from your newest members of the intergalactic community? Let's further take a look back at what's happened in foreign policy on planet Earth over the past 77 years. World War II, the deadliest war in the history of humanity, ended in 1945 when the only nation in the world with nuclear weapons, the United States, dropped two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This killed between 129 and 226,000 people, mostly civilians, from the blasts and the ensuing radioactive fallout. The end of World War II left the planet with two remaining world superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. Did both sides come together and agree that these weapons of mass destruction should be removed from the planet to ensure the survival of the human species? Instead, they decided to pursue a policy of mutual assured destruction. How insane is that? At the height of nuclear armament in 1986, the U.S. had an estimated 23.3 thousand nuclear warheads, while the Soviet Union had 40.2 thousand. France, the UK, China, Israel, and South Africa had all developed nuclear weapons by this point as well. This is exactly why Albert Einstein was asked what new weapons would be used in World War III. He said, I don't know, but I can tell you what they'll use in the fourth. They'll use rocks. This is a perfect example of how we're living today in the Upside Down when all five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council have the weaponry to end human civilization as we know it overnight. Then, a glimmer of hope. 
At the end of 1991, the Soviet Union lifted the Iron Curtain when Mikhail Gorbachev dissolved the USSR into 15 newly independent nations, including Russia. This left the world with only one remaining superpower, the United States, and presented possibly the best opportunity yet for world peace and nuclear disarmament. How did President George H.W. Bush, Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, the Pentagon's Undersecretary for Policy Paul Wolfowitz, and their neocon cronies respond to this opportunity? Did they advise international diplomacy and an immediate reduction in armaments? Absolutely not. In February of 1992, two months after the official dissolution of the USSR, a document was leaked to the New York Times of the draft defense planning guidance. The classified document made the case for a world dominated by one superpower whose position can be perpetuated by constructive behavior and sufficient military might to deter any nation or group of nations from challenging American primacy. With its focus on this concept of benevolent domination by one power, the Pentagon document articulates the clearest rejection to date of collective internationalism, the strategy that emerged from World War II when the five victorious powers sought to form a United Nations that could mediate disputes and police outbreaks of violence. Together with its attachment on force levels required to ensure America's predominant role, the policy draft is a detailed justification for the Bush administration's base force proposal to support a 1.6 million member military over the next five years at a cost of about $1.2 trillion. The policy planning guidance went on to advocate the establishment of full-spectrum dominance over the planet in order to maintain our continued privileged access to the strategic raw materials needed by the Northern Industrial Alliance. Privileged access to strategic raw materials being a clear reference to oil. The response to this leaked document calling for unilateral, full-spectrum dominance was so severe that President H.W. Bush instead published a second iteration of the document. The revised policy still called for full-spectrum dominance, but now advised doing so multilaterally through NATO instead of unilaterally. Let's be honest, folks. Is there really any question which government is pulling the strings behind NATO? And then, even though H.W. Bush lost the 1992 election to Bill Clinton, the Clinton administration adopted the second version of policy planning guidance, which has served as the foundational approach to foreign policy by the U.S. for the past 30 years. In September of 2000, Wolfowitz and friends reiterated their stance when they published Rebuilding America's Defenses, Strategy, Forces, and Resources for a New American Century. In this document, Wolfowitz et al. called for a buildup of U.S. US military forces in order to fight and decisively win multiple, simultaneous, major theater wars, maintain nuclear strategic superiority, control the new international commons of space and cyberspace, and pave the way for the creation of a new military service, the U.S. Space Force, with the mission of space control, and 
Increase defense spending gradually to a minimum level of 3.5 to 3.8% of GDP, adding 15 to 20 billion of total defense spending annually. How far we'd come from James Madison's advice in 1787 that a standing army is one of the greatest mischiefs that can possibly happen. Other lovely comments from this document included, the process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. It advocated for the expanding of support specialties such as intelligence and secret police and made the ludicrous argument that at current budget levels, a modernization or transformation strategy is in danger of becoming a no-war strategy. While the American peace might not come to a catastrophic end, it would quickly begin to unravel. The result would be much the same in time. Let me get this straight. A no-war strategy is a bad outcome, and peace would somehow result in the catastrophic end of America? What? Anyway, two months later, George W. Bush is elected president after his brother, Governor Jeb Bush, ends the Florida vote recount. Then ten months after that, you have 9-11, and the neocons get the Pearl Harbor-type catalyzing event, which helped to justify the disastrous wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It additionally enables the passage of the Patriot Act, which has been used to justify the abrogation of an ever-increasing list of American civil liberties. These events collectively set the stage for the geopolitical mess we're in today. What had been going on on the other side of the Pacific during this time? In Vladimir Putin's February 23, 2022, declaration of war against Ukraine, he alleged that the United States in 1990 had promised NATO's jurisdiction would not move one inch to the east. He further alleged that in 2000, he inquired with Bill Clinton about Russia joining NATO, something which he'd never disclosed publicly before this moment. Bill Clinton's reaction was very restrained. Now, I know Americans are not generally in favor of believing anything Putin says these days. But think about the implications here if he is telling the truth. That means we could have had a path to nuclear disarmament 22 years ago. Why would Clinton have been restrained at the proposal when the end of the nuclear threat would have been viewed as possibly the greatest development towards world peace in history? Is it possible that the desired foreign policy outcome for the U.S. and NATO has never been one of global peace, but rather one of perpetual war? As to the promise of no further eastward expansion of NATO, I've included a map of NATO countries in the year they join, so you can decide for yourself how well we've stuck to this promise. And let's not forget the next two additions soon to be joining NATO in 2022. Finland, and Sweden. Then, over the next 22 years, we've seen Putin become increasingly hostile and autocratic, leading to his 2014 annexation of Crimea, followed by his 2022 declaration of war and invasion of Ukraine. 
This again takes us to the present day on the brink of World War III. As a reminder, World War II, the deadliest war humanity has ever seen, ended when two bombs were dropped on Japan. Today, there are an estimated 9,440 nuclear warheads split across nine countries. 87% of them are in Russia, 4,500, and the United States, 3.7,000. If the conflict between Russia and NATO turns hot, World War III unequivocally will not end the same way as World War II. If this escalates to nuclear war, we end human civilization as we know it, and in the process, take out a large swath of animal and plant life our beautiful planet has spent millions of years cultivating. Do you believe governments around the world have a legitimate plan to get us out of this mess? Now, in this interview, Dr. Boyland described leaked footage from Project Blue Book, allegedly showing an NSA interrogation of an extraterrestrial in captivity in June 1964. I've included the links to the three public videos from this interrogation and encourage you to watch them for yourself and to determine whether or not you think they're real or fake. Either way, the extraterrestrial being questioned, labeled EB3, had several thought-provoking comments. This includes what could be in store for humanity if we continue on our current path. Number one, to travel in time is to travel in space. This is a very important concept which I'd like to dive into further. I made several references during the ET timeline earlier about the relationship between consciousness, time, and space. One of the principles that I've come to accept as truth since I began exploring metaphysics is that consciousness serves as the underlying essence of the entire universe. Put simply, consciousness is a fifth dimension that transcends space and time. This is also what's meant by those in the spirituality community when they talk about having fifth-dimensional awareness. This idea, known as panpsychism in modern parlance, is typically dismissed and ridiculed by conventional scientists. However, this was not always the case, and many of the most advanced ancient civilizations recognized consciousness as the foundation of cosmology, including the Vedic and Egyptian philosophies. As I've explored the modern scientists who are taking the science of consciousness seriously and are entirely uninvolved in the ET phenomenon, I've become increasingly convinced that we need to shift our current quantum mechanics paradigm to one based in consciousness. This includes the works of Rupert Sheldrake on morphic resonance, Dr. Bruce Lipton on epigenetics, Dr. Deepak Chopra on integrative medicine, and the entire compendium of research based on Maharishi Vedic science. Only when we recognize the implications of a cosmology rooted in consciousness can we start to understand how these ET civilizations have developed the technologies to facilitate transdimensional interstellar travel and to not be constrained by the theoretical limitations of the speed of light as proposed by Einstein in his special theory of relativity. Now, back to EB3. Number two, death is a human construct. It does not exist. You will experience and have experienced every instance of so-called life. You, me, him, 
We are instances of the same life, separated by what you call death. Number three. When asked how he speaks English, EB3 replied, Learning your language is essential to understanding your species. Number four. EB3 goes on to describe two threats facing our species. The first is nuclear war, and this appears to be the timeline from which EB3 comes. EB3 says earlier in the interrogation that his species is a descendant of the humans who survived this nuclear war and that his species can no longer breed with sapiens. When asked, why do we destroy ourselves in nuclear war? He replies, political and religious dogma. It is the root of all major conflict of your species. In your next century, access to weaponry of mass destruction by states that are ruled by dogma will destroy your species. When asked when the nuclear war starts, EB3 replies, just over one half century from this point in time, 1964. Nuclear war will begin in this country, United States. A human male will briefly rule your country and will be responsible for the destruction of most of your species. He will weaken your democratic mechanism by appealing to your species' most primitive instincts, fear, tribalism, political and religious dogma. There will be international condemnation. In response, he will order a preemptive nuclear strike. This will proliferate into global nuclear war. The initial exchange only ends a few million lives. It is the resulting radiation that will end most of your kind. My species is the evolutionary result. When asked, how do we stop this? EB3 replies, protect your democracy from political and religious dogma. Protect it from rejection of objective fact. At this point in time, your democracy is stable. This will not be the case in a half century. The video cuts off as EB3 is being tortured before he can explain the second threat. Dr. Boylan notes that the Zeta Reticulin was ready to state another global threat when he was cut off by torture from speaking further. The additional threat he would have said was that the dangerous future U.S. president, if elected, would try to cling to power after worldwide condemnation by staging a fake War of the World-style alien invasion using secret U.S.-manufactured anti-gravity crafts pretending to be UFOs and armed with exotic directed energy weapons to simulate an alien invasion. Then he would get worldwide martial law declared to repel the aliens and put himself and his cabal cronies in charge of everything. Again, I can empathize with the skeptics out there who have no confidence in this interrogation being legitimate. But whether or not it's real, given recent events, I think we humans would do well to take these threats seriously. So again, I ask you, where do we go from here? The time to hesitate is through. The doomsday clock is 100 seconds from midnight. We need to figure out a solution to this geopolitical situation immediately. As Einstein said in 1946, the people need to know that a new type of thinking is essential in the atomic age if mankind is to move towards higher levels. Well, I have a proposal that represents a new type of thinking. 
And frankly, I'm sick of waiting for the leaders of governments around the world who have apparently forgotten that peace has always been an option. So it's time that we take matters into our own hands. A call for nuclear disarmament. I propose a grassroots movement with people around the world calling for immediate, universal nuclear disarmament. I've had the benefit of spending most of my life in America with extended stints in Europe and China. While I've only met a handful of Russians, I can tell you that not a single person, American, European, Chinese, Russian, or other nationality that I've met, is in favor of nuclear war. So then why do our leaders seem so determined to drive us to that end? If we the people of the world come together and demand it, our leaders will have no choice but to agree to it regardless of how overtly autocratic those leaders may be. I'm quite certain that the people of Russia have no desire to be driven to nuclear war by corrupt oil oligarchs, just as we Americans would have no desire to be driven to nuclear war by corrupt oil oligarchs. I further propose that as part of our plans for universal nuclear disarmament, we ban all space-based weapons and sign the Treaty on the Prevention of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space. Both China and Russia have announced that they would sign an agreement to ban all space-based weapons, with over a hundred other countries also agreeing to do so. But you know who hasn't agreed to sign such a treaty? The United States of America. How's that for global leadership? We tried mutual assured destruction during the Cold War, and where has that left us? Let's decide now to pursue a policy of mutual assured evolution. I propose we start a coalition of people amongst all the nuclear powers, and eventually people from all nations of the planet, that we collectively demand from our leaders immediate nuclear disarmament and a ban on weapons in space even with the increasing proliferation of censorship by tech platforms around the world, this should be an initiative that can quickly garner widespread support. Many of my listeners have ideas for operationalizing this plan. Please reach out to me directly. I further believe that it is incumbent on us American citizens to take the lead on this plan, just as our government has taken the lead on setting full-spectrum dominance. Let's not forget that the United States government is one of the people, by the people, for the people, even if the reality of our government has never matched that principle. I don't care if our politicians lack the willpower to get this done, and I'm done waiting for them to figure this out. I have the willpower to save this planet and our species from destruction. Do you? Yeah.